Well, good morning. I hope you guys are anticipating a great Thanksgiving, just like we had a great opportunity to... Hello, did you see that? I caught it. I lost my place, but I caught it. You guys know what a reflex is? That was a reflex. It's an automatic response <laughs> to some sort of stimuli that may or may not be discomfitting. A reflex is an automatic, unthinking, often habitual behavior or response to a stimulus. Okay, reflexes are triggered. Like you remember when the doctor hit your knee with that little rubber tomahawk, right? Just in the right spot. You hoped he hit it in the right spot. And then your, your leg would kick reflexively like Matt's does during worship. Have y'all, have y'all picked up on that? It's a thing. It's a reflex, I think. Is that a reflex? Today we're going to talk about the natural reflex of faith. Okay, there is a faith reflex. Now let, let me remind you before we jump in how we are defining faith. It is belief without expiration. It goes on and on and on no matter what's going on. It is belief without expiration in Jesus as Savior and God as sovereign despite circumstances. So our faith is not affected by our circumstances. It is belief without expiration in Jesus as Savior and God as sovereign despite circumstances. So there is an automatic, unthinking response to faith. Okay, but before I, I tell you what it is, so just hold that thought, before I tell you what it is, I want to play a little game for some of you Bible trivia buffs, okay? We're going to play a little game of Bible trivia. Now, if, if we've played this game before, and if you know the answer, don't show off, all right? It's not the time. You, you know the Gospels, which are the four books in the Bible. They begin the New Testament. The Gospels, four books in the Bible that, that are exclusively about Jesus and his life. They are written by four different people. They were written... Their thought, their intent was to establish Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. So each one of those writers, writing from their perspective, chose, picked out events in his life, miracles that he performed to paint a picture, a portrait of Jesus as God, right? So each of them chose different things. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John painted different portraits of the same God, and so they included different events in his life because they had different objectives. Okay, but here's the question. Do you know the one miracle apart from the resurrection of Jesus that is included in each of the four Gospels? It's the one thing Jesus did that they all agreed when they sat down to write, this must be included. Okay, so don't say it out loud. I've warned you. Think about your answer, okay? Have you got it? All right, so my first thought would be, this one makes the most sense to me, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Do you remember he was entombed for four days? Jesus came along and called him out. Lazarus knew all the disciples and all the writers of the Gospels knew him, and it was an amazing, like raising someone from the dead is an amazing deal, and yet that is not the one. Maybe you would say it was the first miracle where Jesus changed the water into wine. You guys have heard about that. The Puritans have never gotten over that one, so it's only included in one of the books of the Bible. 
Maybe it was when Jesus made pigs fly. Do you remember when he came and the, the, guys were, the guy was demon-possessed? He cast the demons out, sent them into the herd of the pigs, and they went flying over the cliff to their death. But that one is not in all four. It would make sense if it was the virgin birth. We're about to celebrate that for... Does it start before Thanksgiving these days? It seems like it does. <clears throat> but... Did you know the virgin birth is only in two of the four Gospels? How about walking on water? Because that's amazing, and I would love to be able to do that, but that's not. So which one is it? It's the feeding of the 5,000. The feeding of the 5,000. Did anyone guess that without prior knowledge? Okay. Y'all are really smart. Why wouldn't we think of that one? Because it's really huge, right? The reason it's included in all four of the Gospels is because it tells us something about God. It tells us something about Jesus. It reveals something about ourselves. But what we're also going to find out today is that it informs us about the reflex of faith. When we have faith in Jesus, the reflex of that faith is thanksgiving or what I'm going to refer to today as thanks living. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. I could have picked any of the four. You know that by now, right? But we're going to read from Luke chapter 9, and I'm going to begin. And if you don't have your Bibles, it's okay. We're going to put the Scripture right up on the screen. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 10. This is the miracle that they all presented. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. They had just been out on a preaching junket, and they were healing people and casting out demons. It was an amazing trip. So they wanted to tell Jesus about it. They reported to him. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve, the disciples, came to him and said, Jesus, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we're in a remote place here. No one's eaten, no one's rested. We need to send them away. And Jesus replied, you give them something to eat. They answered, uh, well, we have only five loaves of bread and, and two fish unless we go buy food for all this crowd, about 5,000 men were there. 5,000 men, not including women and children. But Jesus said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And the disciples did so. And everyone sat down, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven He gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Now, when we consider that event from what it teaches us about Thanksgiving, there are... I think three lessons that just jump off the page. The first is, 
Jesus actually gave thanks for a provision that was grossly inadequate. Jesus gave thanks for a provision that was grossly inadequate. Now, sometimes when we refer to this miracle, we talk about Jesus using a kid's meal. Okay, in, in the Gospel of John, uh, when Jesus told them to go out and to, that they were responsible for feeding the people, Andrew, the disciple, who was always very resourceful, went right to work. But even Andrew could only identify one person who was willing to participate in the feeding of the 5,000, and it was a, a little boy who decided that he would share everything that he had to share. And all he had to share was the lunch that his mom packed before he went running around town. You know what it was? Five biscuits and two sardines. That was it. It was essentially a Lunchables, okay? It was just enough to temporarily stave off a child's hunger. So if I staged a reenactment today of, of this particular miracle, at least leading up to it, using Lunchables, I would have you, at this moment, break up into groups of 10, okay? I would assign the elders to be the supply chain to distribute the food to you, and before I opened this feast, which consists of, by the way, I brought one, Lunchables, right here. I thought Matt was going to eat it before church, but I held him off. This, this Lunchables consists of six wheat crackers, five medallions of turkey breast, and three pieces of Asiago cheese. So I, th I think we actually have more than they did right here. And so before we started to eat, I would do what Jesus did. I would pause and pray, saying something like this, God, thank you for this bountiful provision. We know that every good and perfect gift comes from you. You've met our needs today. Satisfy our souls as you satisfy our hunger. Now, if you heard me pray that, knowing that this is all we had for lunch, you would probably open your eyes during the prayer like this, thinking I was crazy, right? Your, your thoughts would probably go something like this. What's there to be thankful for? There's, there's not enough food for one of us, much less all of us. We, do, we don't have a supply chain problem. We have a supply problem. What is there to be thankful for? Not the food. Now, we have lots to be thankful for, but for the group, food is not one of them. There's not enough. See, when we think about Thanksgiving, well, let me ask you a question. When are we typically thankful? When we know that we have what we need or when we receive some sort of unexpected blessing. In other words, we are generally thankful. We give thanks after the supply is in hand, when we've got exactly what we need. But listen, the real challenge of thanksgiving and therefore thanks living is to be thankful when by all accounts, what you have is inadequate. That's the challenge.
when you don't have enough. That's when thanksgiving, thanksgiving in lack, is the reflex of a vibrant faith. It is believing when we don't see what we need. Now, it is remarkable to me that Jesus had the people sit down and prepare to be fed. He told the disciples that they were going to feed them, not maybe. He said, you are going to feed them. And then before he had adequate supply, he said, let's bow our heads for the blessing. And he prayed and gave thanks. Now, why is that remarkable? Because our tendency is to give thanks after the bread multiplies, not before. Before, we wonder, is God capable? What are we going to do? But Jesus gave thanks before it multiplied. Now, you may argue, and you would be right, that Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen with the bread. I give you that. He knew that he would be supplied with what he needed. And you could say, if, if you knew what Jesus knew, then you would give thanks to. Right? Well, we do know that. We do know. Jesus taught about life in the kingdom of God, what it means to live by faith. And, and he instructed those of us who live by faith, who have faith in him, not to worry about what we will eat, drink, or wear. Paul actually tells us that God will meet all of our needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Those are promises from the king of heaven who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He's got plenty. So we do know that. Jesus knew that, so when he gave thanks to God, he was actually modeling the right response, the living faith reflex for every follower of Jesus Christ, regardless of their circumstances. And that's the lesson here. In all circumstances, give thanks, especially when there appears to be little to give thanks for. Here's what Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 16. He said, rejoice always, pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances. Give thanks in all circumstances. If you've ever wondered, to, if you want to know what God's will for you is, this is it. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who are in Christ Jesus. That's understood. It's God's will for you in Christ Jesus. This is what God-pleasing faith does. It's living with gratitude. It is God's will for those of us who are in Christ Jesus to give thanks no matter the circumstances. We, we give thanks for what we have even when what we have doesn't seem to suffice. It doesn't seem to be enough. God's will is for us to say, here's what we've got. It came from you. You say it's enough. Thank you. Give thanks. I look forward to seeing what you're going to do with it. That's what Jesus did when he held that lunchable up 
to God. Thank you. What will you do? When that's our response in all circumstances, we move from being a person who offers conditional thanksgiving to real and continual thanks living, which is God's desire for our lives. That's what God wants for us. It's his will. God wants us to give thanks even when what we have doesn't seem to be enough. Now, the second lesson Jesus teaches is that he actually tells us what it means to be thankful. Now, I, I understand that you know good and well what it means to be thankful. If you've had children, you've spent like all their formative years saying, say thank you, say thank you, say thank you. Thank you is what we do when someone does something good for us. The truth is there is more here than meets the eye. There's more to it than that. So I want to dig in. The scripture says that Jesus took the bread and the fish. He looked up to God, offered it toward heaven, and the Greek word here is eulogeod. That's what he did, giving thanks. It's eulogeod. Eulogeo is a compound word which literally means good word or good talk. So he held the five biscuits and the two sardines toward heaven and talked good about them. Now, we get our word eulogy from this Greek term, and it means to give tribute to. It is to give tribute. There is no space, no space in that word for bad talk or complaint. It strictly means to speak well of. Now think about what happens at a funeral when we eulogize someone. We are giving tribute to their goodness. We're, we're celebrating appropriately all the good things, the good memories that we have with that person. It would be wildly inappropriate in a eulogy to say anything that didn't celebrate their goodness. Other things might be true. But during the eulogy, we dwell on the fond memories and experiences we have with the dearly beloved. So here's what Jesus did, literally. He looked up to heaven with the Lunchables, paid tribute to what God had given him to work with, which by all non-faith accounts was a pitiful supply. Pitiful. You know what he could have? Well, he wouldn't have. I might have. You know what he could have said? Look at this junk you've given me to work with. What am I supposed to do with this? Truth is, I, I might not even have spoken to God about it because I would have been frustrated that it wasn't enough. Instead, I would have probably found someone to whine to wondering how we are supposed to do what God has called us to do with the quality and the quantity of these resources that are lacking. But Jesus didn't do that. He couldn't. Why? Because he was committed to eulogeo, to praising. He was committed to eulogizing God's provision. His half-brother James said we should be too. Look at James chapter 3, verse 10. He says this about all of us. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. 
My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Out of the same mouth comes good talk and bad talk, praise and cursing. This should not be. It certainly wasn't for Jesus. Because Jesus was committed to playing the hand God had dealt him. And in every case, in all circumstances, he did what God's will was for his life. He engaged in good talk about his cards. So if Jesus had been married, you know what? You would have never heard him say anything bad about the wife God had entrusted to him. If he had kids, it would have been the same. Why? Because good talk honors God and it honors them. If Jesus had had a job, he would have given thanks for it. Jesus was always engaging in good talk because he knew that God loved him and was going to work everything out for good, especially those things that appeared to be bad or inadequate. So no matter the circumstances, Jesus was thankful. And notice, he was thankful publicly. It's one thing to give thanks in your prayer closet, but Jesus stood out there in front of 5,000 people, men, plus women and children, and declared, I believe we have something to be thankful for here. A little boy shared his Lunchable, and we're about to eat. Thank God. Now, I, I just want to challenge you for a minute here as we move into Thanksgiving. It's a week that should be a celebration of the way we live, Thanksgiving. Following Christ means acting like Christ, which depends upon developing good talk about people, places, things, opportunities, and especially challenges. Especially challenges. Here, here, here's what I know. You can't be thankful and complain at the same time. Try it. Not to me. Find somebody else. <laughs> you can't be thankful and complain at the same time. Now, now listen, I'm not saying to deny truth I'm not saying that there isn't a time to vent, okay? Don't live in denial. It doesn't make things better. It actually makes you bitter. But at the end of talking about expressing to someone that's close to you who knows where you're headed and what you're about, then in the end, the choice we make is to thank God for what he has given us. It is the faith reflex where we believe God is going to meet our deepest needs. The scripture says, be angry, but do not sin. Be sure that when the tidal wave of emotional frustration passes over you because you're experiencing what you believe to be a lack, then get your feet under you, giving God thanks for what he's going to do with the hand you've been dealt. God is going to work it out for good. You, 
if, and you'll see it. Here, here's the deal. Sometimes we miss what the good things that God is doing because we're, we've spent all our time complaining. And we're not even looking for the good that God is doing. When you eulogize your challenges in faith, you're setting yourself up to see God at work. That's what it means to be thankful. We eulogize our challenges, believing that God is going to bring the best from what feels like the worst. And third and finally, thanksgiving leads to satisfaction. Now, I, I need to say this. this what I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that when we are thankful, we can create ex nihilo, we can create from nothing, that our words become our reality. That's not what I'm saying at all. Thanksgiving isn't magic. Okay, good talk isn't like abracadabra where stuff starts to multiply like loaves and fishes on the seashore that day. That is not what I'm saying. My hunch is I could stand up here all day and espouse the virtues of this particular luncheon package, whatever this is, and I could just talk all day, and it would never become more than six crackers, five medallions of turkey, and three pieces of Asiago cheese. I could hold it up and pray over it, call you all to come up here and pray over it, and we would still have one Lunchable. Turkey, cheese, and crackers. Thanksgiving may not always change our resources, but thanksgiving always changes us. By turning our focus to God in faith, what happens is our perspective changes. God just lifts our eyes so that we can see what he's doing. And when we're seeing, looking for him, if we seek, we will find. And when we're seeing and trusting his plan, we begin to live in the easy rhythms of his grace and we begin to experience the fullness of joy that Jesus prayed that we would have. We will know satisfaction as we have never known it. As thanksgiving gives way to thanksgiving. But it starts with being grateful. Now, when we, we talk about this story in Scripture, we always refer to it as the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. But, but I'm going to propose today that we have mislabeled this particular miracle. Because the, the text says two things that happened. There were two things that happened to the 5,000 that I think are really noteworthy. Do you remember what they were? Look at verse 17 again in Luke chapter 9. They all ate, all of them, 5,000 plus women and children, and were satisfied. Satisfied. Now let's just stop right there. How often are you satisfied? 15,000 people ate one meal consisting of biscuits and sardines. It 
And they were all satisfied. I'm going to go out to lunch afterwards. I'm going to buy exactly what I want, and I have a feeling I won't be satisfied at the end of the meal. They all ate, and they were all satisfied. Now, while all of them eating is really significant, the satisfaction part, to me, is the most amazing. I, I mean, you think about it. They're, they're primarily men, 5,000 men, children, women, they're all there. They're all satisfied? Everybody. Most meals, I, I just find it hard to be pleased. Something's always left out, right? Someone's going to say, well, it would have been better if, you know, we had had some hot sauce or more butter for the bread or something. After lunch, you would think there were a couple of people there that may have said, you know, I wish we had a spot of tea or perhaps a little piece of chocolate. That would really top things off. Yet the result of this meal is that 5,000 men ate and were satisfied. So what gives? How, how did that work? Well, the word satisfied here doesn't actually mean satisfied the way we use it. The word means full. It means they ate until they were full and there were leftovers. When we use the word satisfy, we don't use it to indicate that our needs have been met. The fact is most of the time our needs are always met and we don't even have to think about it. These people actually wondered where their next meal was going to come from. They lived every day like that, every day. We don't have that. I bet you know exactly what you're going to eat Thursday for Thanksgiving, don't you? And where you're going to get it or what you're going to make. We use the word satisfied only when all of our wants are fulfilled, not when our needs are met. Because if we did it when our needs were met, we would live in perpetual satisfaction, most of us. And by the way, we should thank God for that. That's why you hear people it's interesting if you really stop to think about it. But you hear people who get a new house, new house. They move out of their old and they've identified the house they want to move into and they move and then they're not satisfied. You get a new car and it's not totally satisfied because someone has one that's a little bit better, a little bit bigger, a little bit prettier. But if you were homeless and got a new house, my hunch is you'd be satisfied. When our basic needs are met without much ado, we always want more. We are rarely, if ever, satisfied. There's a yearning that drives us to the next thing. 
But these people were hungry. They were really hungry. And so when they were full, they were satisfied. They were thankful. Jesus met their basic need, all of them. And it flowed out of his thanksgiving and it led to theirs. They were full, they were satisfied, and they were thankful. They may not have had everything they wanted. If you listened closely as we went through that story, the disciples suggested to Jesus that he send them away so they could find food and lodging. They were in the middle of nowhere. So they may not have had everything they wanted, but they got exactly what they needed. Now, offering God thanks to God leads to seeing and appreciating the good things that God has provided. It leads to satisfaction. Now, what happened on that hillside for 5,000 men plus women and children was a foreshadowing of what would come for all mankind, for you and for me. See, there was another time when Jesus took bread, gave thanks to God for it, and broke it. He did this for a much larger group, but he was in a much smaller audience. Once again, the 12, the disciples were there with him. But this time it was night. As a matter of fact, it was the last supper that he would share with his disciples. Once again, he was breaking bread to be passed out so that others could partake and be satisfied. But this time, the bread was broken in symbolism. It symbolized the breaking of his body which would give all who would come and believe ultimate satisfaction because it met their ultimate need. It was the bread of God. Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 33, for the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus was referring to himself. And, and then in verse 35, he said this, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Listen to me. Jesus who broke the bread and multiplied it said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. What is he saying? Come to me and be satisfied. Remarkably, the death of one man satisfied the payment for all our sins, and now all who come to him in faith can taste and see that the Lord is good. Listen, I've got news for you. We have one great need. We live in the richest country we are the richest people in the history of the world. And we have one great need that none of us can escape. 
And that is the need to be forgiven for our sins and reconciled to our Creator, reconnected to the God who created us to have a relationship with us and love us. And when that need is unmet, let me tell you, that that defines why. It answers the question why we are perpetually unsatisfied. Because nothing, nothing will meet that yearning that we have to be connected to our Creator. Nothing. And so no matter what we get, no matter how much stuff we have or how little stuff we have, there's always something else we want because we know there's a need that has been unmet. And what Jesus was telling his disciples and what Jesus was showing us as he provided food for 5,000 was what you really need is the bread of life. What you really need is Jesus. And until we have a relationship with God and the forgiveness of sins has been established and we are reconnected to our Creator, until we have that sorted out, nothing, nothing, nothing will ever satisfy. We will be in perpetual pursuit of the next thing. The finish line just keeps moving a little farther away. It always has, and it always will. So if, if, if you're thinking, hey, if I, if I get the promotion, if I get the vacation house, if I get the car, if I get the degree, if I get my parents off my back, if I get whatever it is, whatever you're dreaming about, if you don't have Jesus, I can assure you it will not satisfy. Because what you need is to be forgiven for your sins and reconnected to your Creator. Jesus, the bread of life, thankfully offered Himself to die. That's why He took the bread and broke it, because His body was the next day was going to be broken on the cross. When his body was broken, those who come to him by faith, that need is met. Your sins are forgiven. You become a child of God. Jesus' body was broken. The bread of life was broken because of the hunger of our soul. And only the bread of his life, broken for us, will ever satisfy that's where thanksgiving and thanksgiving begin. With faith in Jesus. That's it. That, that, that is the gospel. Here's the perfect story. Jesus stepped out of eternity into time. He lived a perfect life. And yet at the end of his life, he was crucified on a cross like a criminal. He who, as Matt referenced earlier, he who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God so that all our needs, the need of reconnection, would be met. 
and apart from faith in Jesus, you cannot reconnect to God. If we don't consume that bread by faith, we'll always be hungry. Always be hungry. Perpetually unsatisfied. That's your great need. Now you may be thinking, oh, I have all kinds of needs. Nope, that's the one. Get that need met by faith in Christ and watch God work. The way we can be thankful when we recognize that we are wanting is when we know how the story ends. We know what happens on the other side of life. There's really only two possibilities. One is that you spend eternity separated from God or that you spend eternity with God. Those who trust Jesus as the bread of life and only those who trust Jesus as the bread of life will spend eternity with their creator. Will you bow your heads and we'll pray? Lord, just like those folks on the hill that day must have looked at those five biscuits and two sardines and thought there is zero chance that he can feed the masses, the world that we're sitting in right now. We look at the offering of Jesus, his death on the cross, and think, well, how can the death of one person feed the soul of all mankind? But we know it, that's exactly what he did. We recognize, Lord, that the invitation is to place our faith in what Jesus did on the cross. And Lord, we know that his offering was accepted. That his victory was won because he stepped out of that grave, out of the tomb, alive. And I know, Lord, that you have invited us to live with that resurrection power. That we can know victory when the world looks at us and sees defeat. That we can be satisfied when we are wanting because of Jesus. Father, I pray for every person in this room that we would have that kind of faith. Believing that Christ is enough for me. And Father, if any have come here today and they don't know you, I pray that by your spirit you would draw them to yourself that you would illumine them to this life-changing, life-transforming truth, the path to satisfaction. And Father, for those of us who have received the bread of life, forgive us for not living out our gratitude. 
By your spirit, Lord, lead us to thanks living. For your glory and for your kingdom. In Christ's name I pray, amen.